0: The Law School of America Uniformity Clause. The final phrase of the Taxing and Spending Clause stipulates, But all duties, imposts and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Here, the requirement is that taxes must be geographically uniform throughout the United States. This means taxes affected by this provision must function with the same force and effect in every place where the subject of it is found. However, this clause does not require revenues raised by the tax from each state be equal. Justice Story characterized this requirement in a light more relevant to practicality and fairness. It was to cut off all undue preferences of one state over another in the regulation of subjects affecting their common interests. Unless duties, imposts, and excises were uniform, the grossest and most oppressive inequalities, vitally affecting the pursuits and employments of the people of different states, might exist. In other words, it was another check placed on the legislature in order to keep a larger group of states from ganging up to levy taxes benefiting them at the expense of the remaining, smaller group of states. A somewhat notable exception to this limitation has been upheld by the Supreme Court. In United States v. Tosinski, the court allowed a tax exemption which was quasi-geographical in nature. In the case, Oil produced within a defined geographic region above the Arctic Circle was exempted from a federal excise tax on oil production. The basis for the holding was that Congress had determined the Alaskan oil to be of its own class and exempted it on those grounds, even though the classification of the Alaskan oil was a function of where it was geographically produced. To understand the nuance of the court's holding, consider this explanation, Congress decides to implement a uniform tax on all coal mining. The tax so implemented distinguishes between different grades of coal, for example, anthracite versus bituminous versus lignite, and exempts one of the grades from taxation. Even though the exempted grade could potentially be defined by where it is geographically produced, the tax itself is still geographically uniform. Apportionment of direct taxes. Language elsewhere in the Constitution also expressly limits the taxing power. Article 1, Section 9 has more than one clause so addressed. Clause 4 states. No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid, unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Generally, a direct tax is subject to the apportionment rule, meaning taxes must be imposed among the states in proportion to each state's population in respect to that state's share of the whole national population. For example, as of the 2000 census, nearly 34 million people populated California, C.A., At the same time, the national population was 281.5 million people. This gave CA a 12% share of the national population, roughly. Were Congress to impose a direct tax in order to raise $1 trillion before the next census, the taxpayers of CA would be required to fund 12% of the total amount, $120 billion. Apportionment and Income Taxes. Before 1895, Direct taxes were understood to be limited to capitation or poll taxes, Hilton v. United States, and taxes on lands and buildings, and general assessments, whether on the whole property of individuals or on their whole real or personal estate, Springer v. United States. The decision in Springer went further in declaring that all income taxes were indirect taxes, or more specifically, within the category of an excise or duty. However, in 1895, income taxes derived from property such as interest, dividends and rent, imposed under an 1894 Act, were treated as direct taxes by the Supreme Court in Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company and were ruled to be subject to the requirement of apportionment. As the income taxes imposed under the 1894 Act were not apportioned in such a manner, they were held unconstitutional. It was not the income tax per se, but the lack of a provision for its apportionment as a direct tax which made the tax unconstitutional. The resulting case law prohibiting unapportioned taxes on incomes derived from property was later eliminated by the ratification of the 16th Amendment in 1913. The text of the amendment was clear in its aim. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on income from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. Shortly after, in 1916, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brushaber v. Union Pacific Railroad that under the 16th Amendment income taxes were constitutional even though unapportioned, just as the amendment had provided. In subsequent cases, the courts have interpreted the 16th Amendment and the Brushaber decision as standing for the rule that the amendment allows income taxes on wages, salaries, commissions, etc. without apportionment. No taxes on exports. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 5 provides a further limitation. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. This provision was an important protection for the southern states secured during the Constitutional Convention. With the grant of absolute power over foreign commerce given to the federal government, the states whose economies relied chiefly on exports realized that any tax laid by the new central government upon a single item of export would apply very unevenly amongst all the states and favor states which did not export that good. In 1996, the Supreme Court held that this provision prohibits Congress to tax any goods in export transit and further forbids taxes on any services related to such export transit. Shortly after, The Supreme Court reaffirmed this provision in United States v. United States Shoe Corporation in 1998. As part of the Water Resources Development Act of 1986, a harbor maintenance tax, 26 U.S.C. Section 4461, was imposed at the ad valorem, percentile, rate of 0.125 percent the value of the cargo instead of at a rate dependent entirely upon the cost of the service provided by the port. The court unanimously affirmed the ruling of the lower federal circuit court that a user fee imposed in such a manner is, in fact, a tax on exports and unconstitutional. However, Congress may tax goods not in transit even though they are intended for export so long as the tax is not imposed solely for the reason that the good will be exported. For example, a tax imposed on all medical supplies would be constitutional even though there is a likelihood a portion of those supplies will be exported. Restrictions on spending The constraints placed upon the Taxing and Spending Clause and the subsequent powers derived therefrom do not stop at the taxing power. Disguised Regulations While such holdings are rare and unlikely under contemporary jurisprudence, the Supreme Court has shown in the past its possible willingness to intervene on congressional spending where its effects amount to a disguised regulation on private activity. The case illustrative of this is United States v. Butler. In this case, the court held that Congress had imposed a coercive federal regulatory scheme on farm production under the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933 (AAA). By entering into contracts with farmers who reduced their output of selected crops, Congress had placed non-participating farmers at a distinct disadvantage to farmers who cooperated. As such, the program was not truly voluntary as it left the farmers no real choice. The options for the farmers were either cooperation or financial ruin. Under those circumstances, the regulatory scheme essentially required submission of farmers to a regulatory scheme Congress had no power to impose on its own. The holding of the Butler case stemmed from the legal theory of that era, which held that regulation of production fell outside of Congress's commerce power. While the court today is much more likely to defer to congressional spending via the Commerce Clause, there are still circumstances where such spending may not be justifiable or validated by that power. Unconstitutional Conditions While clearing the hurdle of regulatory spending may be easier today than in the past, another significant hurdle exists in the unconstitutional conditions doctrine. Under this principle, the government may not use its spending power to purchase the constitutional rights of the spending's beneficiaries. Furthermore, entitlements may not be denied on grounds that violate a constitutionally protected right. The court has typically held this spending limitation as only applying to First Amendment rights where the choice imposed is unreasonable or vague, or where the beneficiary essentially is put into a position where acceptance of the conditions becomes obligated. Conditional Spending and Federalism In 1987, the holding in South Dakota v. Dole reaffirmed the authority of Congress to attach conditional strings to the receipt of federal funds by state or municipal governments. In addition to the requirement that spending be for the general welfare, however, the court devised more scrutinous criteria for determining the constitutionality of the conditions imposed. First, there can be no surprises, that is, the conditions for receipt must be stated clearly and the beneficiary must be aware of those conditions and their consequences. Second, the conditions imposed must be related to the spending in question. Last, the incentive must not be so significant as to turn cooperation into coercion. At dispute in Dole was a condition placed on the receipt of federal highway funds, elevation of the drinking age. Any state in which persons less than 21 years of age could lawfully possess and consume alcohol would consequently lose 5% of the federal highway funds allocated by Congress. The court found the second and last conditions met since the requirement for the funds was germane to highway safety. Additionally, the loss of only 5% of the amount was not found so substantial as to be coercive in the eyes of the court, as opposed to losing half or all of the funds might be. In 2012, the court held for the first time in National Federation of Independent Business v. Sibelius that Congress had used its power under the spending clause in a way that was impermissibly coercive. Power of the purse, generally. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7 Imposes Accountability on Congressional Spending. No money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law, and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. The first half of this clause indicates that Congress must have appropriated by law the funds to be spent before the funds can be released from the Treasury. It serves as a powerful check of the legislature on the executive branch, as it further secures Congress's power of the purse. This provision, when also combined with the bicameral nature of Congress and the quorum requirements of both the Senate and the House of Representatives, serves as a constitutional check and balance on the legislature itself, preventing most spending that in effect does not implicitly have broad support with respect to both representational popular will in the House of Representatives and interregional approval in the Senate. Congress attempted to limit appropriations law via riders with the Line Item Veto Act of 1996. The U.S. Supreme Court later struck down the act on grounds that it violated the Presentment Clause. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America